but of course, it also for, to be a winning, meaningful business, it needs to be a sustainable business. So you can reinvest in innovation in a sustainable way, and you can also uh, make sure that your investors stay happy, because otherwise they will not invest in biomedical research, but in in oil or in something completely different, which is not in our interest. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Business Podcast. I'm Peter Sianovich, Deputy Editor at Hot Topics and your host. Together, we're finding out how businesses and their leaders champion purpose, people and planet alongside profit. And in the process, how to define and lead a meaningful business. Today's guest, who you've just heard, is Dr. Paul Peter Tack, former Chief Immunology Officer at GSK and now founding venture partner for Flagship Pioneering. To date, the organisation has created and directed more than 100 scientific ventures, resulting in over $30 billion in so-called aggregate value, although Dr. Tack maintains the value is not the only aim. The true aim, he says, is to foster first-in-category life science companies that transform human health. Almost acting like a healthcare dating platform, Flagship Pioneering matches graduates and alumni from institutions like MIT and Harvard with the teams and funding and leadership and then asks them to choose one of the world's most pressing healthcare issues they're willing to solve. What has Dr. Tack achieved over his career to make it determine whether a healthcare issue is oppressing or not? And how successful have his incubated teams been so far? Find out all in this latest episode. Thank you very much for joining me on Meaningful Business. Um, we'll begin with your um, earlier career at GSK, where you sort of rose through the ranks to become Chief Immunology Officer. Why don't you just give me a brief um, intro into what that uh, meant and, and why that was such an important part of, uh, of GSK's um, development? Yeah, well, I had multiple roles at, at GSK that I combined. So one was being the Chief Immunology Officer, which means the most senior immunologist uh, in pharma R&D with a remit to create more synergy, more collaboration uh, between the different parts of pharma R&D, but also between pharma R&D and vaccines. There's, of course, a big big, uh, vaccines organization at GSK, uh, but that's a separate business unit. The people working on vaccines are focused on inducing an immune response against a microorganism. So basically, this is also immunology. And I've tried to create an optimal collaboration between the GSK environment and the external uh, academic environment. So that was one role as chief immunologist. And in that role, I created something uh, unique in the industry that we call the immunology network, uh, which was very much focused on working in a very innovative way with um, external academics by bringing them into GSK while they maintained their academic position. Uh, we gave them uh, a lab, a state-of-the-art laboratory. We gave them uh, supportive personnel. And most importantly, we gave them freedom to discover new things that if it was completely based on their discovery, that they would also own in terms of their um, intellectual property. And this has led to a very new way of thinking and led to uh, different uh, programs that started around new pathways that you can target the drugs, but it also led to the creation of a new biotech company called Citrix Therapeutics, which is now based in Oxford, 
and I'm one of the co-founders of uh, Citrix, focused on immunometabolics. So these are some of the deliverables that we have in the space of uh, um, immunology in my role of chief immunology officer. I was also the development leader and the senior vice president for the R&D pipeline. You were involved in loads of opportunities for groundbreaking medicines and therapies whilst at GSK. I mean, that's obviously vitally important for any farmer, um, but for you in particular, um, your belief that the industry has to pioneer these new approaches, um, you know, almost all the time, has created the immunology network, it's also created others. Could you just go into more detail about what other uh, medicines you were overseeing whilst at GSK? Yeah, well, initially I joined GSK to build and lead uh, research and development in immunoinflammation, which is basically, if you translate it into clinical specialties, uh, focused on rheumatology, gastroenterology, dermatology, clinical immunology, uh, what have you. And in that role, I built a strong uh, portfolio of medicines that all went into the clinic. Uh, We filed... um, Benlista Sub-Q, uh, which is a, a medicine for lupus, systemic lupus erythematodus, SLE, uh, which was approved by the regulators and which is in fact the first approved medicine for SLE patients in more than 50 years, 5 zero. Uh, so there's still a big unmet need. And we started new programs where we use what we call a sequential combination therapy, where we combine Benlista with Reduximab and we have uh, preclinical data uh, so data in the laboratory, but also some initial uh, small case studies in patients uh, which suggest that this could be transformational uh, in the treatment of SLE. So that's uh, what I'm very proud of. And then I brought in other uh, or developed other antibodies like an anti-OSM uh, antibody for a condition called systemic sclerosis, also an autoimmune disease with a very bad prognosis. And then a portfolio of small molecules, namely the RIP1 inhibitor, ESM BAT inhibitor, and also a sting agonist for the treatment of cancer. So these are some of the medicines that I'm proud of and that are being tested in the clinic by GSK right now. So, I mean, there's a perception outside of the pharmaceutical industry that it's relatively slow. There's, um, you know, at least years, if not decades, of development for a drug to get from... um, from treatment or to treatment from discovery. I mean, what yeah. steps do you have to make to do to make sure that, you know, you kind of challenge that status quo as it were and made sure that the right therapies came to the right people at the right time, which is exactly what pharma should be? Now, that's a great question. I, I think we have indeed been extremely productive in a very short period of time. This was all in a, within a few years. It went into the clinic. And when I just reflect on why were we successful, uh, there are probably different reasons. One is it was an integrated therapy area unit. So I oversaw everything from basic idea to early development to late stage development to post-approval uh, life cycle um, uh, cycling, um, life science cycle. And, and um, that has helped to get alignment. And my background has prepared me for that role because I've both a discovery and a development uh, background, which has been helpful. Second, in a big organization, there, there's always uh, the hierarchy in the uh, therapy areas or however the units may be called. And then there's the uh, governance structure because you always need governance, especially when you uh, work with patients and they need to be governance to secure the safety of the patients, 
there needs to be governance to make sure that we spend the money wisely, especially in late-stage development, and very big money kicks in. And I got involved in all the key governance boards. I was the chair of the scientific review board, uh, which um, had its meetings together with the global safety board. Uh, so, and I was um, a member of the discovery investment board that we made early um, investments. Uh, I was a member of the late-stage development board. So I think it was all about optimal alignment. And I think at the, at the time I was strongly supported by the most senior leadership of ESK. And it has helped us really to move very fast forward. I think for many of the programs that I mentioned, I do not believe that biotech companies could have done it faster than we did uh, at that time. Wow. I mean, you were at GSK for seven to eight years and um, you've since left and joined a different sector, a different part of the, the whole pharma, pharma world, which we'll touch upon in a second. But now you've got a chance to reflect upon your time at GSK and, and previously what do you think still needs to change? I mean, you spoke that GSK worked harder, if you know, if not harder, about biotech and, and getting something from the ground up so quickly. But from your angle now, what needs to change in pharma to make sure that, again, the right medicines and the right therapies get to the right people in, in a quicker time? Yeah, well, uh, I think we were successful in this very specific part of the business for the reasons that I mentioned. Uh, but... Um, Things can change, and in such a big organization, it's easy to uh, lack alignment or lose alignment between, for example, discovery and development. And I've come to the conclusion that, in general, it is very difficult, I think, for pharmaceutical industries to be excellent in both development and commercialization on the one hand, and discovery on the other. And the reason is that you need a fundamentally different mindset and a fundamentally different way of working and culture to be successful in discovery compared to late-stage development and uh, bringing medicine to the market. But it's very much about um, being regulated, uh, of course, um, more rigid uh, approach to secure the quality uh, that is needed. Um, And it's very organized and operational, and you want to bring these medicines in a flawless way um, in the fastest way possible to patients who need them. In discovery, however, you also, of course, also have a very strong emphasis on um, quality. But it's much more about how do you foster a culture of creativity? How do you make sure that you get the best scientists on board, empower them to uh, seek for new science, which means that many programs will fall over. And you can't control that in an early stage. And you can't say, well, now I want you to make a blockbuster because that's really not how early science works. So I think this fundamentally different mindset makes it difficult for the leadership of many pharmaceutical companies to also be successful in early discovery. And therefore, I thought we need a new model. We also need a new model to be able to collaborate in the best way possible with academics, uh, external academics. And that's exactly why I created this immunology network. And one idea was that if immunology network would help me identify new areas of science like immunometabolics that he would create biotech companies bringing the best academics together with the deep knowledge of uh, pharma in terms of chemistry for example and late-stage development and quality but without controlling it together with the rigor of decision making and also the external funding 
from venture capital. Exactly, and which brings us on quite nicely to your your not so new role now, but certainly your newest position at, at flagship pioneering. So in venture capital, you've you've jumped ship from pharma to biotech VC. Um, and I suppose that's probably because in a way you can implement more meaningful change from that part of the sector. Um, could you just describe really quickly why flagship pioneering is actually a bit different? So we understand that, you know, typical venture capital models, you know, seek to invest in firms that can progress in a sort of a step change way. You know, they've got their existing products or services or a team experience and there's an iterative uh, nature to their, you know, improvement. But at flagships, I understand that, you know, you're almost creating think tanks um, and you're trying to align that with, you know, global unmet challenges within the um, pharma and biological world, which sounds fascinating. So could you describe how what that looks like? It's an interesting model. So I, I don't think flagship pioneering would call itself a venture capital company anymore. It's, um, it's an organization that originates new prototype biotech companies based on the best science that is originated internally within the think tanks, as, as you refer to. Maybe bring together the brightest scientists in a specific field. It's, it, it needs to be new. We are not interested in Me Too products or Me Too science. Uh, this is almost unreasonable new science, <laughs> unreasonably new science. Uh, and then when the feeling uh, exists based on the emerging data that this can actually deliver in terms of a discovery platform, this prototype biotech company that's formed, which has probably five, six, seven people, very smart people working with the external world, uh, then the organization gets behind it with a Series A funding, completely uh, supported by flagship, and it becomes a new call, a new company, which still operates in stealth mode. So these, these companies work under the radar, they work in, within the flagship laboratories, uh, and uh, they are led by a senior leader from flagship pioneering. If I understand that, you, then, you know, it's more of a yeah, uh, collaboration platform, so you're providing the location and the physical and financial space to bring together the brightest minds with the most important topics, bring them together as teams, get flagship to lead that in a way, and then once that's complete and successful, if a Series A is appropriate, then they're allowed to sort of go into the world. Is that correct? That's correct. And uh, so flagship does uh, bring much more to the table than the funding. They also bring to the table the talent. Uh, there are many people who are, uh, whose job it is really to originate new ideas, start new companies, uh, foster the science, and then when these companies mature, they are recycled into the flagship ecosystem. So where do you find the talent? What, where do you look? Because you're specifically based in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, are you looking globally? Do you look for specific sectors? Are there particular countries that have particular talent focused on yeah. Immunobiology, for example, or, or oncology? Well, um, it's probably important to note that more or less around the corner uh, is MIT, uh, probably the best university in the world, and around the other corner is Harvard. So that's an enormous source of talent, uh, just very close by. Uh, and I think many people working at Flagship has a, have a background at Harvard and or MIT. Uh, but then when the companies mature after Series A, 
And then flagship leadership uh, thinks that's a high probability of success that this can move on. Then an external CEO is attracted, is sought. Uh, and then the next, one of the first things the CEO needs to do is to um, find Series B, uh, which will typically be supported by flagship, but then also other investors come on board. Uh, but I, with my background, I am a, a Dutch uh, passport holder. My nationality is Dutch. I've lived in the UK for nearly eight years. I'm a UK citizen and I work in the US and I live there half time. Uh, of course, I have a global perspective and a global network. So I also bring in people from from the UK, from continental Europe, also from other universities in uh, in the United States. So every CEO will determine uh, what kind of talent he or she wants to attract. Um, I think I attract more international talent than some of my colleagues. How do you source or find out what is appropriate to innovate in? You know, what are what are the things that we most need in terms of um, pharmaceuticals, in terms of new medicine and new therapies? Yeah, in my role as a leader of a biotech company or in my role as a venture partner at flagship? I would say both. But, I mean, for ease, let's go with the latter. Yeah, yeah let's start with flagship. Um, I think, so I'm relatively new, as you mentioned, and I, I joined in October, so I don't pretend that I have a lot of experience in, in creating these uh, new companies yet try to be supportive uh, to the other companies in the very early stage. One of the clear criteria is that these uh, these companies need to focus on completely new science, which has the promise to lead to real medicines for patients who need them. Uh, but they also need to have the promise to deliver real value for flagship and for future other investors that come on board and for society. And the science needs to be transformational, highly innovative, and uh, as I said, almost unreasonable because it's such a new concept to really address a very, very big scientific hypothesis and ultimately a very big medical problem. I should also say that flagship is not only focused on biomedical research, but also on agriculture. So this could also be about how can we uh, resolve the big problems in terms of shortage of food. How can we make sure that we develop uh, crops that are uh, able to feed far more people in, in the world? I'm not involved in that myself uh, because I'm not an expert in this, uh, but that's also an important component of actually pioneering. Yeah, my next question is going to be, you know, could you give an example? So you've got agriculture or agribiology, let's call it, and then the, and then the pure pharma side. So on the pure pharma side, what examples can you give for something that is necessary and timely, something that needs innovation and yeah. disruption right now? So there, there's a strong platform component in all the, the flagship companies. So I think some of the examples are companies like Rubius, um, which, has, which is developing medicines based on red blood cells, actually. And they use red blood cells to uh, serve basically, for example, as a little factory to deliver a therapeutic protein. Uh, or they have um, uh, created Moderna, which is a company that went for an IPO last December, the biggest IPO in history. Uh, Moderna is focused on using RNA as a therapeutic. There are multiple companies that are focused on the microbiome, uh, which is really interesting because we can read in the literature and in the media 
almost every day that there's a new discovery about a very strong link between the microbiome and metabolic syndrome or, that, uh, or uh, autoimmune disease or in determining whether a checkpoint inhibitor is going to work in a cancer patient um, or in neurological disease. So you think about Parkinson's disease, epilepsy, and many other conditions. So it's very interesting. In each of these microbiome companies has a different focus. So some of them see the microorganisms as, um, as the medicine where you could basically try to, to change the microbiome. Others you use uh, almost clonal approach where uh, the, the clonal bacteria uh, or bacterial clones, I should say, could interfere with the immune system. Other companies are focusing on what do the microbiome, what does the microbiome actually do in its interaction with the human host and how can we mimic that? So these are some examples of uh, areas where, where uh, Flagship is very active at mm. the moment. It, it's fascinating and you know, for anybody listening who hasn't uh, read up on the microbiome uh, just yet, I mean, we've discovered recently that the amount of micro, microbes in our body sort of numbers even greater than the animal kingdom, for example. It's, it's an untapped environment that we just are still discovering. So it's, it's fascinating that there's so much research going on right now. So I suppose what end products have we experienced or are experiencing right now that's a direct result of a different way of tackling drug discovery and um, improving the efficiency of putting that through the process? Yeah. Well, I think there are many programs that, of course, came from biotech. Right, um, and uh, partly the um, the ideas may have originated originated in academia, that are subsequently brought into big pharma. Uh, an example would be um, Adaptimmune, that has de- developed uh, a T cell receptor approach, uh, gene therapy approach for the treatment of certain uh, forms of solid cancers. And when I was at GSK, I. Uh, also oversaw, in addition to immune inflammation, also oncology and infectious diseases. We looked at these programs in, in great detail. Uh, I went to Oxford to, to visit the, um, their facilities, and we saw that there was clearly a signal in a, a condition called synovial sarcoma. And um, these are very small studies in, rare, in a rare disease, but it became absolutely clear looking at the data that was something that was really very different from patients who get patients um, who get a standard of care at the moment. Uh, basically, they were therapy-resistant patients with long-term remission. In other words, uh, no progression of the tumor. So we decided to basically buy this program. This is now a GSK gene therapy program in in oncology, and I think this is typically how it goes. And I would think this may be how it increasingly will go. Because when we look at the return on investment uh, in discovery of pharmaceutical industries, uh, I think it's, it's getting pretty close to zero at the moment. And it is, I believe, related to not lack of efficiency or, or other reasons. It's about a fundamental, fundamentally different mindset and different culture and different workforce that you need to be successful in discovery. And that's exactly what you can find in... Um, in uh, biotech companies or in organizations like Flexier Pioneering, where you can really go fast, work in a very agile way, really focus on the, the best science without being too distracted 
about whether the commercial forecast justifies moving on at this very early stage. Because there are many, many examples where medicines were developed in a very unplanned manner. If you think about the best best-selling medicines ever, the TNF inhibitors, right? They were developed for sepsis. Okay, they failed, and then ultimately it became clear that it worked in rheumatoid arthritis and um, in, in inflammatory bowel disease and in psoriasis and in many other indications. And very holistic portfolios were built that nobody could have dreamed of, and the, the science actually started in these biotech companies. So I believe that increasingly there will be a larger ecosystem by late stage development that uh, pharmaceutical industries will become late-stage development organizations and commercial organizations, that they need to have the best minds in their organization to be able to buy the right medicines. Do you think that, um, you mentioned there's a less focus on commerciality, um, more focus on the minds and on, and on the medicine production. Do you think that features within a larger trend that we're seeing across every other industry where there's a move for more meaningful um more meaningful products, more meaningful services, more meaningful experiences where actually the benefit to society either outweighs or is just as great as the viability or the commerciality of the product. Is that what you're seeing? I mean, with investing, for example, I'm thinking of ethical investing. Um, yeah. Does that resonate with you and does that resonate with flagship? Well, uh, first, I think you need to, to make the best medicines for patients by First, focusing in the early stage on the best science. That's what the organizations like Flagship need to do. Uh, and then while the program matures, there needs to be an increasing focus already early on uh, uh, on is this the best medicine potentially for patients? Is there a real unmet need? Does it really address a significant problem and will it increase the benefit risk for the patient? Second, is this of uh, interest to the prescribers, obviously, but very importantly, uh, not only is it acceptable to regulators, but also to payers. Because if you develop a medicine, also from an ethical perspective, you need to make sure that there's optimal patient access. Um, if there's a more general question about uh, should ethical considerations be taken into account, I think the answer should always be wholeheartedly yes in anything we do. We always need to focus on doing the right thing. First, because it is it is the best thing to do for uh, for the for humanity, but I think in the long term it's also also a better business model. You always need to focus on doing the right thing, and ethics mm. should be key here. Uh, and more generally, what would your definition of a meaningful business be then? What would your definition of a business that is doing good ethically and for society be? Well, for me, a meaningful business. I, I'm a physician who tries to. Uh, reach to millions of patients. And I've treated patients for decades. Uh, there was also a, a long academic uh, and clinical career before I joined GSK. Uh, and this is what is what is driving me. So it needs to have an impact on patients and therefore on society in a positive way. Uh, but of course, it also, for, to be a meaning, meaningful business, it needs to be a sustainable business. So you can reinvest in innovation in a sustainable way. And you can also... Uh, make sure that your investors stay happy because otherwise they will not invest in biomedical research but in in oil or in something completely different which is not in our interest. And what do you hope to see in the industry over the next five years? With every industry is evolving, some more rapidly than others. Clearly biotech has some of the most funding 
um, in terms of Series A and Series B. What are you hoping is going to change with all that? So uh, I think uh, there are many unmet needs. And sometimes um, people think in a superficial way about um, uh, what the remaining unmet need is. So one example would actually be that I started the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. I've heard senior advisors say this is a crowded, competitive area. We should not go there. Uh, and there are many biologics uh, on the market and there are uh, targeted small molecules. The reality is that in at any time point, 50%, 50 of the patients with rheumatoid arthritis will have active disease in spite of all the medicines that are available. And there are two points to, to be made. One is these conditions, and the same is true for many other conditions, especially in uh, autoimmunity, are not real diseases, they are syndromes. And they will respond to one treatment, um, but only the subset of the patient. So we need to think much harder about individualized healthcare, precision medicine, and also for new, uh, about new mechanisms of action for those patients who don't respond to anything. And we should not underestimate the big unmet needs. So that's one part I think we need to look through that lens. And the second is, we are living in the era of the revolution in immuno-oncology. We are seeing very remarkable uh, improvements in small subsets of patients, basically long-lasting remission or cure. It's an immunological intervention. This was just a dream 10 years ago. Now this is possible. But the reality is at the same time that most patients are not cured with this approach. So I think we see initial proof of concept now we need to build on this and ask the question, well, if you activate T-cells, for example, in a patient with cancer, with, let's say, a checkpoint inhibitor, what is the reason that these T-cells are not as um, effective in most of the patients? What is it in the tumor microenvironment, for example? How can we start to understand this? And how can we com uh, develop combinational therapies that will take away the break in the tumor microenvironment while you activate the T-cells? This is one example. So I think... Oncology will be a big one for the next five to 10 years. And then the next wave, the next revolution should be in neurology, neurosciences, because it's such a huge problem and an increasing problem, uh, especially in the Western world. Uh, if you think about Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, etc., huge problem. I think we're starting to get to the point where there's a deeper understanding of the events going on that lead ultimately to these uh, terrible diseases. So I think that I would expect that the next big, big wave needs to be in uh, neurology, in particular in neuroimmunology. Very interesting. And then finally, um, with that in mind, what would your advice be to anybody who wants to break out into the biotech sphere with their grand new idea in either solving um, Alzheimer's or breaking into immunotherapy or oncology, let's say? What would the... the um, best piece of advice from you be? For me, if you would uh, start a biotech company or join a biotech company, I think number one is um, focus on the best science. Make sure that you work together with the best scientists internally and externally uh, because even if you have a very big organization, most or scientists will not work for your organization. So you need to have optimal access. So that's one. Second, bring in the best workforce, also beyond scientists, and create a very strong culture, a culture of teamwork, where egos are not important, but where it's really about collaboration, but also a culture that is 
focus on vigorous decision-making. Many things in early discovery will fall over. It's better to get to that point as soon as possible, design the best killer experiment, define very clear go-no-go criteria, and then come to the best, uh, in the best way to that answer. And even if it's, neg- if it's negative, celebrate that as a success so you can stop wasting your money and put your resources behind something that is more likely to win. Um, so I think it's people, it's science, it's culture and technology. Paul, Peter Tack, thank you very much for your time today. And I'm very thank much you. looking forward to seeing uh, what happens in the future of oncology and, and indeed everything else. Thank you very much, Peter. Have a great day. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Chris Wigley, London-based partner at McKinsey and the solution partner at Quantum Black. Both organisations advise clients on how to optimise performance, and within both, Chris leads AI and machine learning technology teams to help brands rebuild themselves often as more agile, faster or cleaner businesses. But the ethics of AI as a conversation hasn't matured as fast as the technology cautions. And so, if we're still unsure on the effects and ethics of AI and machine learning, how can businesses make best use of this technology without sowing potentially negative consequences down the line?